right now on Matter of Fact. A grueling schedule, dangerous conditions, firefighters put their lives on the line every day. And now a shortage is making things even harder. We still have 911 calls we have to run. We just have to do it with 80 less people. A Central Florida Fire Department is getting creative to attract the next generation of firefighters. Will it work? Plus, tax day is two weeks away and Americans are on hold with the IRS. IRS has been historically starved for resources. Could an $80 billion increase for the agency make your filing process easier? I mean, it sounds like a lot of money, is it? We talked to a Syracuse professor who has kept a close eye on how the IRS works for decades. And they made history at the Supreme Court. I still remain the only person in US history to be denied a trademark for slant because I was too Asian to receive it. Now, the slant's eight-year legal battle is being told to a new generation at the opera. Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. Longer lines, slower service, and more inconvenience. The pandemic has forever changed the American workforce. At the start of the year, there were an estimated 5 million more positions available than people to fill them. But job shortages aren't just headaches. They could mean the difference between life and death. There are reports of firefighter shortages, both career and volunteer, in major cities and rural towns, although it's hard to nail down an exact total across the country. In Marion County in central Florida, the department is having trouble filling vacancies and keeping up with the soaring demand. 911 calls have doubled there in the last decade. Our correspondent, Dan Lieberman, has more on how the department is finding creative ways to recruit staff and serve the community. We had a lot of people who decided they didn't want to do this job anymore. We've got to figure out this problem. There's too much at stake. It's the nightmare scenario for U.S. Fire Administrator Dr. Lori Moore Merrill. So there are departments right now across the U.S. where the shortages are so severe that they have to just shut down operations. That's correct, particularly in the volunteer cadre. Our volunteer stations, there are a lot that there's no one to respond. There are places where there is no one coming from miles away. Volunteer and career fire departments are experiencing chronic staffing shortages, and chiefs across the nation are sounding the alarm. So right now, I'm about 80 short. Uh, I need a little over 500 uniform personnel, so we're just trying to uh, figure out ways to, to bridge that gap. Marion County in rural central Florida has one of the most understaffed fire departments in the state. It serves a growing population of some 400,000 and includes the largest retirement community in the nation. We can't reduce services. We still have 911 calls we have to run. We just have to do it with 80 less people. So that equates to uh, being busier on your shift. It equates to mandatory overtime, which means tomorrow maybe you can't go home when you were scheduled to go home. Firefighter Ryan Leitz knows all too well about mandatory overtime. He used to work an average of 60 hours per week. Now he has to work as much as 100 hours. Sometimes it's, it's literally an hour before you're about to get off and you have to make that phone call to your wife. Leitz is married with three kids, and his wife, Sarah, has her own demanding job as a nurse. 
and often has to cover for him. Physically and mentally, it, it drains you to have to be there for another 24 hours. Good job, bud. When I'm home, I like to be home with them and not physically and mentally drained. How do you talk to your kids about your job? It's getting to the point where I don't want anybody that I love to become a firefighter and, and have to go through this. I still love to, to say that I'm a firefighter. I love to show off for my kids and when they come to the station, they do get excited, but the most happy they get is when I get home. Some of the highest shortages for firefighters in the whole state of Florida are right here in Marion County. Why do you think it's so bad here? We haven't been able to keep up with pay and people see that the mandatory overtimes are here and, and that's happening across the, the state, but here there seems to be no end. Marion County as compared to other departments throughout the state really is the department that has the highest percentage of vacancies. Fire Chief Harold Theus helped lead a statewide survey of fire departments to study what's causing the shortages. When you found that nearly 3,000 firefighters are going to retire in the next few years, are there enough new hires to fill those spots? Well, there certainly hasn't been in the last few years. Now, I'm not really sure where the shift turned where youth were no longer as interested in entering public safety uh, as they once did, but somewhere along the line it has happened. Theus wants the public to understand what's at stake. Fewer firefighters responding to emergencies. One county south of us had other counties come into their jurisdiction to run calls because they were having to take units out of service. What can that lead to? I mean, what are we talking about here? Longer response times? Yes potentially a house burning, live, lives lost. It leads to all those things. And that's why this is such a critical issue for us. And so one of the things that we're doing to try to address that is marketing of the fire service. Some claim we are heroes. And you can see the creativity in these videos and it uses the imagery of, you know, the hero and protecting your community really trying to hit those emotional words and emotional phrases that attract young people into the business. You guys doing all right? We're focusing locally on trying to hire local people, feeding uh, the fire service through high school programs, through mentorship programs, finding people that maybe can't afford to go to school and hiring them and paying them to go to school. We do really good at hiring people. We have to do a better job at keeping them here. Making sure the nation's safety net remains strong for everyone. For Matter of Fact, I'm Dan Lieberman in Florida. Next on Matter of Fact, last year, IRS agents answered about 10% of the 73 million calls from taxpayers. They can't get through on the phone lines, they're stuck. We talked to a statistician who has been tracking the IRS since the 1970s. Can new funding turn the agency around? Plus. Asian-American rock group's legal battle and victory at the Supreme Court is now being performed as an opera. And later, we return to Puerto Rico, where a community is refusing to go without power after a major storm again. They've created their own microgrid. You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine.
love it or hate the IRS, well, actually, let's be real, nobody loves the IRS, but it does perform the necessary function of collecting taxes, which means we can have things like bridges and medical research and education, important stuff. But with less funding over the years, the agency has downsized its staff and is using outdated technology, meaning longer wait times to speak with an IRS agent if you can get through it all. Last year, the Inflation Reduction Act became law, giving the IRS $80 billion. That money will be used over the next decade to hire more staff and to modernize the agency. Susan Long is an associate professor at Syracuse University and co-founder of the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse, or TRAC. She's been studying IRS records since the 1970s. Susan Long, so nice to have you. Take me back to the 1970s when you started really tracking, if you will, the IRS. Why did you start? What information were you looking for? Well, I was a graduate student at the University of Washington back then, and I wanted data for my dissertation, looking at the effectiveness of tax audits. Your organization found uh, in 2021 that people who made less than $25,000 were being audited at a rate five times higher than other Americans. Why are lower income Americans being targeted in this way? Well, because they're really easy marks. They took the anti-poverty earned income tax credit and IRS can send them a letter through the mail and ask a lot of complicated questions. And if those taxpayers don't respond because uh, they don't have anyone to assist them and they can't get through on the phone lines, they're stuck and they end up having uh, the money assessed against them. So do you think by adding money to the IRS and getting more people just to answer the phones, it's actually gonna help people who are in that $25,000 and lower income bracket to be audited less frequently or at least to have a better option in navigating those letters? Yes, I do think that that would be very, very important. There is actually this massive gap, right, in collections. What causes that gap and how come they're not collecting it? Um, that takes IRS hiring revenue agents. Those are experienced, highly qualified people that can audit these complicated returns. Basically, their studies, I mean, they show trillions and trillions of dollars potentially if nothing is done within the next five years. And to collect it, you've got to audit uh, the, where the money is and where is the money? That's the millionaires and the big companies. There are people who I think are concerned that actually what will happen is that the IRS will start targeting more middle-class Americans with audits and not necessarily go after the very rich people. Do you think that's a, a valid concern? Most taxpayers have a W-2 and your money is withheld and there are 1099s that tell IRS, you know, what other kinds of money uh, you have received. They promise, right, that in fact, no one that is making uh, less than $400,000 will be audited more. I have to tell you, I find taxes so complicated. 
Oh, I agree, but that's Congress. If we want something that is easier to comply with, uh, we should be talking to our senators and representatives. IRS, you know, they're just handed the law. It's not they that write it, but they're given the responsibility. Susan Long, thank you for joining me. Coming up, an Asian-American band goes from rock to opera. The Slants return to our show with a preview of opening night. surprising to hear that classical music is increasing in popularity among Gen Z and young millennials. It's credited with helping to ease pandemic stress. Now, traditional opera companies are using more contemporary themes and musical scores to lure younger audiences. Our special correspondent, Joey Chen, reconnected with someone we first met last year on the Matter of Fact listening tour, one of our trailblazers and troublemakers, musician Simon Tam. He's now taken his slant on the American legal system to a very different stage. In this test of free speech, his was the voice not heard. No, that is not us that you are speaking. At least until now. These are the words Simon Tam wanted, but didn't get to say at the Supreme Court, now being sung by Korean-American tenor Matthew Pierce in a performance that chronicles Tam's nearly decade-long legal odyssey on behalf of his Asian-American rock band, The Slants. We sing for the Japanese and the Chinese and all the duck Tam fought to trademark The Slants name, which the U.S. Patent Office insisted would disparage Asian-Americans. That would be Asian Americans like Simon Tam. I still remain the only person in US history to be denied a trademark for slant because I was too Asian to receive it. That's crazy. It's a bit ridiculous. But in some ways, inspiring. After the band finally won its Supreme Court case, Tam and his bandmate, Joe Jiang, started a foundation for young activists. They got booked as free speech experts and they were commissioned to compose their next act, an opera? What did you think? That's a great idea. Go ahead and do it, because I am not qualified to write an opera. But one year later, the Opera Theater of St. Louis premiered Slanted, an American rock opera composed by Joe Chung and Simon Tam. If it creates more roles for people who look like us on stage, if it creates roles for Asian Americans, I will do it. We got a sneak peek at the final product during dress rehearsal. Slanted is one of three in the Opera Theater's New Works Collective, which features marginalized artists and storylines and aims to make opera more accessible, especially to younger and more diverse audiences. The Opera Theater's on lay. I think that people feel opera is this elitist, expensive art form that's only open to a select few, when the reality is that it was designed to be the entertainment of the masses. To combat that perception, the St. Louis Company went further in a first for American opera, asking a committee of local citizens, not experts, to choose which operas to commission. Why take that risk? 
I think that risk is necessary to keep our art form alive. And if people are asking for us to rethink what we do to make it relevant to them, this is a necessary step. So yes, it's risky, but it's also completely necessary. Slanted tells the story of just one band, but carries a universal theme of isolation and of belonging. I think everyone knows what it feels like to be invisible at some point in their lives. Everyone understands what it feels like when you're not heard and how devastating that can be. Director Rajendra Maharaj centered the significance of place on this production. We're right next door to Ferguson. St. Louis hasn't forgotten the 2014 police killing of Mike Brown in suburban Ferguson or the emergence of Black Lives Matter activism here. We're not just making these pieces of work for the patrons of the opera. We're bringing community, hopefully from Ferguson, from, from other parts of St. Louis and other nearby towns and just connecting them. Connecting those audiences to stories that deserve to be heard as the curtain draws on a new act. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen in St. Louis. The Opera Theater of St. Louis plans to premiere a total of six new works over the next two years. Ahead on Matter of Fact, an update on how Puerto Rico is turning to the sun to power their grid. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Now, an update on Puerto Rico's effort to upgrade its power grid to withstand extreme weather. In 2017, Hurricane Maria cut power on the island for nearly a year. Matter of fact, visited Puerto Rico about a year after Maria made landfall and there was still widespread damage. I met community groups and residents advocating for a solar solution. If another owner can pass, we have electricity because we know the pay no more for the, the big plants. Last September, Hurricane Fiona hit the island, battering the already distressed infrastructure. The town of Adjuntos has installed a cooperatively owned solar microgrid. It can power 14 local businesses for 10 days if the connection to the main grid fails. Puerto Rico's government has a goal to run the entire island on renewable energy by 2050. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, salmon, oil, and gold. How an unpopular purchase became a win for the U.S. And finally, we're marking an anniversary about an unpopular land deal that benefits many Americans. On March 30th, 1867, the U.S. agreed to buy Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million. Then Secretary of State William Seward was mocked for investing in what was seen as worthless territory. Critics called it Seward's folly and Seward's icebox. Alaska was an enormous wilderness, desolate, freezing cold with little infrastructure and few people. That would soon change. 
In the 1880s, the first economic boom came from salmon fishing. By 1917, Alaska produced half of the world's canned salmon. Then gold was found in the Yukon in the late 1890s. The next big discovery was oil. In 1957, it became the region's most important economic driver. Alaska's importance was finally recognized in 1959 when it became the 49th state in the Union. Plus, the Alaska Purchase ended Russia's presence in North America. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.